Support for WABE comes from Virtual Imaging, providing proactive medical diagnostics to catch deadly or debilitating diseases early, using state-of-the-art equipment to detect warning signs or offer peace of mind. You can take charge of your health at virtualimagingatl.com. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Shea Moss loved her job. The older voters like to call, they like to talk to you, they like to get my car, they like to know that every election I'm here. Moss worked as an election official in Fulton County. On election night 2020, she helped count votes at State Farm Arena in Atlanta. In the weeks that followed, she and her mother became a target for then-President Trump and his supporters. Quite obviously, surreptitiously passing around USB ports as if they're vials of heroin or cocaine. Uh, what was your mom actually handing you on that video? A ginger mint. Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, was also spreading a video, supposedly showing Moss and her mother pulling a suitcase full of ballots from under a table. An investigation quickly found that none of Giuliani's claims were true. But Trump and his allies kept spreading the lie anyway. Moss says she received thousands of messages and threats on Facebook. Telling me that I'm, I'll be in jail with my mother and saying things like, be glad it's 2020 and not 1920. On Tuesday, Moss recounted this experience in Congress as the January 6th committee laid out how Trump and his allies pressured state officials to overturn the election result. I don't go to the grocery store at all. I haven't been anywhere um, at all. I've gained about 60 pounds. I just... Don't do nothing anymore. I don't want to go anywhere. I second guess everything that I do. Um, it's affecting my life in a, in a major way, in every way, all because of lies. The threats got so intense that Moss's mother, Ruby Freeman, had to leave her home for two months. Do you know how it feels to have the president of the United States to target you. But he targeted me, Lady Ruby, a small business owner, a mother, a proud American citizen who stand up to help Fulton County run an election in the middle of the pandemic. Congressional investigators are showing the public the fallout from Trump's election lies. Will it make a difference? I'm Sam Greenglass, politics reporter at WABE in Atlanta. I'm Emma Hurt of Axios Atlanta. I'm Raul Bally, a WABE politics reporter. Editor Susanna Capilouto is off this week. And this is Georgia Votes 2022, a weekly podcast from WABE in Atlanta that's all about the midterms. I vote because it's a privilege. I vote it's a duty. because I want to make an and impact. I vote my because I want leaders who care voting about Voting is the gift of so freedom. So voting matters to me because I believe there is value in my voice. Okay, so the congressional panel also heard from Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and one of his deputies, Gabe Sterling. Our job is to get the facts out 
Tell the truth, follow the constitution, follow the law. Raffensperger detailed Trump's pressure campaign. Every single allegation we checked, we ran down the rabbit trail to make sure that our numbers were accurate. Emma, I wanna start with you because you were actually in the room. So set the scene for us. Uh, what struck you that maybe we didn't see or hear because we were watching these hearings from here in Atlanta? You know, what really struck me about being in that room is just how many other journalists there were. I mean, this is really, one of the few times where the entire Washington DC press corps gathers regularly. There was a representative from almost every outlet in that room, it seemed. And so that level of scrutiny, you know, it sort of hits you when you're surrounded by all these cameras and all these journalists. Um, it also really struck me the emotion that some of this testimony um, brought out in people speaking, you know, Arizona House Speaker Rusty Bowers uh, Shay Moss, as we heard above, her mother's video testimony, and it really captured the room. I mean, these are not your normal committee hearings, as we know. These are highly choreographed and produced to really pack in the most powerful information. Often we get a lot of rambling from politicians, let's be honest, in committee hearings, and, and the real new information is buried sometimes, but not in these hearings. And Emma, you were also here covering this in Atlanta back in 2020 when it happened. I'm curious sitting in that room, watching this evidence be presented, you know, a year and a half later, is there anything that you're seeing in a new light now with that benefit of distance? You know, obviously we've learned a lot more about what was going on behind the scenes at that time when, you know, Roel and I and, and other reporters were just trying to stay above water um, in terms of, you know, the fake elector scheme and the extent of what the White House was talking about. That We learned that they considered at one point sending MAGA paraphernalia to Georgia election investigators during that. Now that idea was squashed, but that kind of thing is really remarkable to learn. And I think the other thing that strikes me is just the toll that this this took on these people has not wavered. I mean, to see the Speaker of the Arizona House still impacted by that experience, to, to hear from, from Moss and Freeman about the personal toll this has taken, like this left scars on human beings and those scars are very much still open. And so, of course, one of the points of these hearings is to lay out all of this evidence for the public because we know that there's a significant portion of the country that still believes that the 2020 election was stolen. So Raul, I wonder, do you think that these hearings televised nationally will change anyone's beliefs? I don't think it's going to change any opinions. I think it's just going to reinforce what, what some people already believe. Now, I haven't talked to voters since Tuesday's hearing, but let me tell you what I'm hearing on the campaign trail. The majority of Republican and conservative-leaning voters believe something happened with the 2020 elections. And let me give you an example. I talked to Mary Bear, who is from Rabin County in North Georgia, and I spoke to her at a local Republican Party event. And, and I want you to hear my question. If there was fraud, why hasn't either the Attorney General or Raffensperger found it, you think? <laughs> it's being paid not to, is my thought. And I also think that they were in cahoots with Stacey Abrams. I really do. Look, there is a basic level of mistrust. And I'll just add, you know, I spoke to Secretary Raffensperger and Gabriel Sterling after their testimony and asked them, do you think that these committee hearings are serving a productive purpose? And they both said, yes, they are. They're getting information out there. They just don't think that information is reaching the people that need to hear it most. Secretary Raffensperger said, I wish Fox News had carried all of it. Uh, the network 
declined to to air the prime time initial hearing it's it's aired some of them since but the broader point from raffensperger remains yeah i was at a juneteenth celebration outside atlanta on saturday and i just want to play you a little bit of tape from a woman named lavanita burnett she's a democrat and i met her while she was sitting on a lawn chair in the shade at the festival i think the people already really know what happened from what we've already read and heard and seen so whether it'll make some people change who just wanted to avoid the truth, hopefully. I'm not sure what good it's going to do, especially if they don't hold people accountable. Burnett asks a really good question. You know, will any of this sink in, especially if there is not some level of accountability? All of this matters a lot, especially, you know, if Trump runs again and if Georgia elections keep being decided by these super slim margins. So we talked about that happening on Tuesday. Also on Tuesday, we had election night. It's not often that election night becomes the tier two story on a given day. (laughs) Amen. Yeah, no kidding, Sam. (laughs) Kind of continuing on um, this idea of focusing on elections, you were at the election night party for Secretary Raffensperger's Democratic Challenger, State Representative B. Wynn. Talk to me what you think Raffensperger's testimony is going to mean in her race against the incumbent Secretary of State. Well, you know, I think Raffensperger now has become kind of best known for this act of refusing to find Trump the 11,780 votes he asked for on that infamous phone call. So I think you're starting to get this sense from the win campaign, this, this worry that that act of standing up against Trump makes Raffensperger seem like a hero for democracy. Uh, and, and maybe that's true, but for a challenger who is trying to paint him as someone who has been a, a supporter of SB 202, the, the restrictive election law that Republicans passed last year, um, you know, you see the campaign trying to make that distinction. We must remind Georgia voters that doing the bare minimum of following the law should not be good enough for us. Secretary of State elections have taken on this new gravity in this moment um, because of what we've just been talking about uh, as these debates about voting and elections have become increasingly prominent. And I think what's also notable, of course, about uh, Representative Wynn and the rest of the Democrats who won statewide on Tuesday are that all of Stacey Abrams's endorsed candidates won. And so that was that was a sign of Abrams's influence with at least this kind of Democratic base voter who would turn out for a primary runoff that that she was able to have the influence to affect who's going to be standing up next to her in November on Democratic stages. And Emma, I heard this on the campaign trail during early voting for the runoffs from Democratic voter after Democratic voter who told me they were there for Stacey Abrams. One of those voters was Sin Armstead of Sandy Springs who came to the Roswell Library to vote early. It was based on who Stacey Abrams endorsed uh, because I think that she's the best candidate for governor and I'd like her to have people she can work with in office. So, you know, we've talked a lot about the power of Trump's endorsement. Uh, as you mentioned, it turns out Abrams' endorsement was maybe the more powerful force in Georgia right now. But let's just spend a moment talking about those Trump endorsements one more time. Uh, he endorsed in two congressional races that were in primary runoffs this week. Both of his candidates lost. Uh, Raul, is there anything that we should glean from that? 
I think there is. There's there's a couple of things that that jump out at me. So the two candidates we're talking about are Jake Evans and Vernon Jones, who were backed by the former president. Evans lost in a Republican-leading district that's heavily in the Atlanta suburbs. Vernon Jones lost in a district that is very rural. It's still important to point out that Mike Collins and Rich McCormick, the two candidates who did win those races, would generally support the former president, even on elections. You know, when McCormick talked about his tight 2020 race during the Atlanta Press Club debates, Collins talked about it on the trail constantly, even bringing up the, the movie 2000 Mules on the campaign trail. Still, that's very different from what we saw with the Trump-backed candidates who lost in May, who had a very different vision. For example, David Perdue, you know, talking about elections, Jody Heiss talking about elections in their races that they ended up losing. I think it's a great point, Raul, and I think also what we learn is, you know, I've heard, you know, Congressman Drew Ferguson told me once that he thought these open primaries without incumbents were the truest test of Trump's influence in Georgia. And what we saw in these runoffs is for the voters who are turning out for this kind of low turnout runoff, the most loyal Republican voters, we can often assume, uh, just what Trump said did not uh, cause them to vote one way or the other. We saw that in May as well, but here was it was really just a, f a final nail into that point that, that many Republicans have been trying to say in Georgia that, that Trump's influence is waning. This was a real big sign. So let me wrap up this conversation with the numbers. In the open primaries where there wasn't a Republican incumbent, Donald Trump had two wins, and two losses. And then the four primary challengers in Republican primaries that he backed, they went 0 for 4. So the president finishes with, with those competitive races with two wins and six losses. All right, this is a good time for a break. Coming up, we've got another special guest on the pod this week to talk about politics and pride. We will be right back. This is Georgia Votes 2022. Support for WABE comes from Virtual Imaging. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Utilizing low-dose radiation scans that reveal cancers, cardiac issues, precursors of dementia, and more. Information about early health screenings at virtualimagingatl.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Georgia Votes 2022. I want to bring in WABE digital editor Patrick Saunders. Patrick is the digital lead for WABE's politics team, and he's also the force behind Pride Month Vertical up at WABE.org. Uh, welcome, Patrick. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So, Georgia has one of the largest LGBTQ populations of any state. I wonder what do you think is missing from coverage of this community in Georgia? Like, is there something you think that gets overlooked or maybe doesn't get the attention that it should? Sure. I mean, one thing you have to take into account is that there's this dwindling of LGBTQ specific media outlets here locally. And, you know, typically traditional outlets don't have the resources to cover the community consistently. There'll be, you know, sort of drop in features here and there, maybe during Pride Month. You know, one thing definitely that we'll be exploring more uh, in the future here at WABE uh, is Atlanta's transgender community. 
just the changing concept of gender and how that manifests in the workplace and education and other areas. I mean, according to recent analysis of CDC data, Georgia has the seventh highest number of transgender people in the U.S. Um, so just keep that in mind as, you know, we talk about what issues get covered and which don't. Uh, another thing is, you know, the LGBT community is dwindling nightlife spaces in Atlanta here. You know, the Stonewall uh, riots in 1969, where this modern LGBTQ rights movement kicked off, that was a bar. Uh, really, one of the other things is just the work done here locally to treat and prevent HIV. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, I mean, the CDC is based here, we have Emory here, different efforts to both find a vaccine and a cure. So those are some things that I think uh, could use some more attention. So, of course, this is a politics podcast, and so let's talk a little politics, Patrick. Georgia is a state that doesn't have laws protecting LGBTQ people from discrimination, especially uh, in the workplace. Uh, talk about what you know with those efforts to change that, and where does that push stand? Sure. Uh, you know, keep in mind that you know, right now it's, it's legal in Georgia to refuse to hire someone, uh, to fire someone, to refuse housing, or you know, refuse services to someone simply because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. So there's been efforts to add those protections on a statewide level, but they've pretty much gone nowhere. One recent development, though, that might aid in that effort is uh, the hate crimes law that passed in 2020. Uh, when that passed, it included uh, sexual orientation as a protected class in state law for the first time ever. And the reason that might be significant is because, you know, this was something that Republicans had fought for a long time. And, and specifically with this hate crimes bill, they, you know, uh, would have accepted it. But if it did not include LGBTQ protections, uh, this one does. And uh, so it makes it a little bit less difficult of a task to pass another law that uh, that includes LGBTQ folks in those protections. So the alternative to that, though, and, you know, since there's no statewide protections, there's been this effort uh, in the metro Atlanta area, especially, but um, in other areas around the state, too, to get those protections on a local level. So cities, counties, they're beefing up their protections really since 2018. Uh, at that point, there was only, I think Atlanta was the only city that had such protections in place. Um, since then, there's been 20, uh, or at least 20 other cities and counties that have added those protections, and both Atlanta and Fulton County strengthened those LGBTQ non-discrimination protections uh, earlier this month. So that's kind of a separate effort that's going on while you know this, this issue gets debated at the state house. Patrick, I also want to ask you about a bill that we've discussed here that passed the legislature that paved the way for the prohibition against trans children playing on the sports team that matches their gender identity. We know that the Georgia High School Association did follow through with this and enacted that ban. How do you think this plays out in November? Does it hurt Republicans? What Do we have any polling? There's very little polling on it, Emma. I mean, the, there's an internal poll from the uh, Brian Kemp's campaign. Roughly three-fourths of respondents backed a ban on trans girls uh, playing in girls' sports, you know, which is, from what we've seen, has uh, made him a little bit more confident about pushing that issue, knowing that voters would uh, side with them on that issue. Now, it's, that's a, uh, just a grain of salt here because of an internal poll, but there is also on the national level, Gallup had a recent poll showing that two-thirds of Americans support uh, banning trans kid in the sports that match their gender identity. So the polling we have, I mean, at least it suggests that this ban on uh, trans kids in sport, sports will not hurt Republicans in November. Um, but, you know, it just remains to be seen. It's, it's definitely a sensitive issue. And, uh, you know, we'll see how it affects either party at the polls. 
And I'll just add, I mean, I covered that poll, Patrick, as you did too, probably in my understanding and talking to LGBTQ advocates is that it's reflective of this larger problem. They believe that people just don't have an understanding of this issue. And so when faced with a question, more people are answering yes, just because it's something that's unknown and, and they don't know anyone personally who's transgender, perhaps, or that they're aware is transgender. Sure, sure. And there's a lot of education around the issue. I know after the uh, gay marriage was legalized in 2015, there's still a lot of issues that the LGBTQ community wants to address beyond marriage. But um, after that, really, there's really this push towards understanding the transgender community and the issues that surround uh, living as a trans person, both in Atlanta and Georgia and across the U.S. So um, there's a lot of education involved. And, you know, while we're talking about elections, you mentioned something to me the other day that I hadn't thought much about, um, and that's that there were two openly LGBTQ candidates for statewide office this year, uh, Democrats, Renita Shannon, who ran for lieutenant governor, uh, and Matthew Wilson, who ran for insurance commissioner. Both of them lost their primary races. And I wonder if this kind of gives us a moment to talk a little bit about LGBTQ representation in elected office in Georgia, not only in these statewide offices, but in the legislature, too. Sure. There's there's just not a lot of openly LGBTQ elected officials in Georgia uh, in general. Uh, I mean, there's seven right now in the state legislature. So just uh, for cutting. Keeping that in context, there's 236 members. Um, there's really only about 25, uh, at least from what I've tracked, openly uh, LGBTQ elected officials across the state. That's at any level. That's you know county commission, school board, mayor, state legislature, and beyond. Shannon and Wilson, they ran for these uh, these two positions for statewide office. Um, they would have been, if they uh, both won the primary and won in November, uh, would have been the first openly LGBTQ uh, person elected to statewide office in Georgia history. Um, so not only is that not happening, uh, they gave up their seats to run for those offices. So uh, we will have, you know, two less uh, LGBTQ members in the legislature. There was one candidate, Imani Barnes, um, in House District 86 who won her primary, Democratic primary, actually earlier this week. Um, that's in DeKalb County, heavily blue area. That would add one more person to that representation. And I wonder how you see this representation or lack of representation playing out, say, when legislation that affects the LGBTQ community comes up in the state house or in Congress. You know, I know when the trans kids and sports legislation came up this year, we saw some powerful testimony from members of the legislature who could speak to maybe not the lived experience of being trans, but of being LGBTQ in Georgia. Uh, We had uh, Senator Sally Harrell talk about the experience of being the mom of a trans child. Uh, What's the importance of this representation uh, for the policy debates that, that happen under the Gold Dome? Oh, it's, it's, it's huge. It's, you know, that was one thing, uh, you know, if I could step back a minute, the the when the the push for gay marriage in Georgia, the groups that were advocating for that at the time, they were sometimes basing their message around gay people are missing out on all these benefits by not being married legally. They found out that that argument didn't really resonate. It was the personal stories of people, and you know, if you know your you know your uncle or your son or your daughter or you know your cousin, that really they found that the Georgia Equality and other groups that st- that story resonated, and they started getting traction on 
on the issue in Georgia. So it's the same thing under the Gold Dome now in 2022. We have Sally Harrell with the trans uh, child. Those reps will say they bring their whole selves um, as much as possible to the state house. And Kim Jackson actually is an interesting example. She's a state senator out in Stone Mountain, and um, she's a pastor. So when these religious freedom uh, bills come up, then, you know, someone like a Kim Jackson, you know, can speak very well to that. That's WABE digital editor Patrick Saunders. Thanks so much for your reporting, Patrick. Thanks so much for having me. All right, let's zip back to Washington for a moment where we started this show. Uh, President Biden is calling on Congress to pause the federal gas tax. Governor Kemp has already halted the state gas tax through, I think it's mid-July. Raul, you talked to Senator Warnock this week. Uh, He's been pushing a pause for a long time. He is, of course, up for re-election this year. So is this good politics or is it also good policy? It's good politics. Look, Unlike anything else you and I buy, gas prices are posted on every station in every store that we passed. And so when I when I did talk to the senator, I talked about the politics of lowering the gas tax, and he brought up what's happening in Georgia. Well, I started talking about this in February, and uh, I was glad to see Governor Kemp uh, decide that this is something that ought to be done. And um, I think they ought to stand with me and him on this issue. Uh, that's happening at the state level, and the federal government can do the same thing. Now, on Monday, I caught up with Warnock's Republican opponent, Herschel Walker, and while he didn't take a position on the gas tax suspension at that point, he did want to talk about the politics of the gas tax suspension. It is amazing that this is voting time, and he want to suspend something when the gas price is a whole lot more than 19 cents. So that's what's so amazing. It's sort of like it's time to get votes, and that's what they normally do. Right now, unless we get control and we become energy independent, we will continue to have problems. At that event, Walker, during his campaign speech, brought up gas prices a number of times. So expect Republicans to bring up gas prices on the campaign trail in commercials and, of course, social media. Emma, you know, I asked, is this good policy? There have been some economists who say, like, actually, this might not be the best policy tool to lower inflation. What do you make of that? Yeah, it's true. We've seen we've seen the reporting from economists. We, and we also know in history, you know, Barack Obama, George W. Bush, past presidents have resisted doing this because the, the bang for the buck, I think, as I heard on NPR earlier this morning, it doesn't seem to work out in, in some estimations that this gets passed on to gas companies more than it does to consumers. And it doesn't actually amount to that much in relation to the cost it might have on the federal budget. However, however, Uh, Warnock has been pushing this for a while, and so has Biden, and it speaks to just how desperate they are to make a dent in this big issue they have, which is prices that really affect people's lives. Finally, uh, let's cross the street from Congress to the U.S. Supreme Court, where we are awaiting a decision in the Dobbs abortion case. What are you all watching for next week when this decision is expected to come down? You know, I'm watching, of course, what happens here in Georgia where our our anti-abortion law is caught up in federal court. Are we going to see that lawsuit against the law dissipate immediately as the appeals court defers to the Supreme Court? That's what I've heard. How quickly will Georgia's anti-abortion law take effect? And I'm going to be watching for the reaction. I fully expect protest, celebration, but an immediate and a very quick turn toward November by both sides of this issue. 
Well, a lot to watch for in the coming weeks. That is it for now. If you have thoughts or questions for your hosts of Georgia Votes, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at GringSam, G-R-I-N-G-S-A-M. I'm at Raul Bally, R-A-H-U-L-B-A-L-I. And I'm Emma underscore Hurt. This is Georgia Votes 2022. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.